all this talk of pruning me that I may abide in Christ. Whenever I've read this text, I've felt like it's such vibrant imagery that I've tried with my imagination to feel what would it be like to be pruned. Have you ever tried to imagine that? Like, ouch, right? But thank you, kind of? Can you imagine being a plant that you know you'd grow even bigger and better if only someone came along and, like, cut you (laughs) a bit? It's a little strange, the whole idea is. It made me think of one of my favorite books, one of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The most famous of the Narnia books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but my other favorite is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in case you don't know the premise of these Narnia stories, or maybe you kind of remember but don't completely remember, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, our brothers and sisters, removed from London during the World War II Blitz. They are sent for safety's sake to the countryside to live with Professor Diggory Kirk, which, by the way, Kirk means church in German. Interesting. Anyway, while they're in this enormous house of his, they're playing hide-and-seek, because that's what kids do, and the youngest, Lucy, stumbles through the back of a wardrobe and discovers another world, right? That's Narnia. It all leads to a delightful story, including fawns and Father Christmas and a white witch and Aslan. Aslan is a majestic lion. Aslan is rightful king of Narnia, only son of the emperor beyond the sea, creator even of Narnia. Does the character of Aslan sound like anyone we know? Hmm. Anyway, in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, the two older siblings are doing their own thing, so it's just Lucy and Edmund and their obnoxious cousin, Eustace Scrub. Has anyone here ever had an obnoxious cousin? I have too. Anyway, great name, Eustace Scrub. These three kids are drawn back into Narnia through a painting of a ship on the wall. The ship, of course, being the Dawn Treader, another great name. That's the name for the boat. Once they find themselves on the boat, the kids are reunited with Caspian, the prince they had helped become king back in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it turns out that since then, peace has been kept And Caspian now wants to fulfill an oath that he made upon becoming king. That is to sail east for a year and a day to find seven lost lords of Narnia. The ship then stops at a different island for a different adventure for each lord. Super fun. It's the story of the second island that I love so much. And it's a story that all centers around this cousin, Eustace Scrub. That he's even here in Narnia is a thing because he was merciless making fun of his cousins for believing in this pretend world where he now stands himself. They only get to the second island after a bad storm has damaged their ship. Lots of work needs to be done to fix it. So you know what Eustace does? He runs away. It's too much work for him. He, he wanders off toward the interior of the island and gets himself pretty lost until he sees a cave. And out of the cave comes an old, nasty, sick dragon. The dragon makes its way to a pool of water and then just keels over and dies. Well, what a relief for Eustace, right? But the sun and the heat are not 
and then the heat turns to a bad storm, and Eustace is seeking shelter, and where better than the cave? And you know what's in that cave? Treasure, of course, gold, silver, gems galore. He especially likes one bracelet because it has a bunch of diamonds all in it, and so he puts that one on his arm. It doesn't quite fit around his wrist, so he puts it up where it fits. Now, after playing in this treasure, it's almost like a, like a ball pit in my imagination at a, at a fast food restaurant, you know. Uh, after playing for a while, he falls asleep because he's pretty tired, and he falls asleep right there on this bed of treasure. Well, you know what happens to people who fall asleep on a dragon's gold with greedy dreams of treasure for themselves? They become dragons, duh, right? That's where dragons come from. So, well, but Eustace didn't know that. So when he wakes up, he doesn't understand where this dragon arm that's so close to him, he doesn't know where it came from. Kind of freaks him out. He thinks it must belong to a real dragon. And so he just like, stays still for a while, and when he kind of tries to move away from it, the arm moves too. The steam that he sees coming from where his breath should be confuses him. Eventually, he figures it out. He's the dragon, and it makes him feel lonely, like really lonely, and then he notices his arm is hurting like crazy. The bracelet is now way, way too small for him. Recognizing his dragonness is the turning point for Eustace. You've probably heard the term before, saint and sinner. The idea is that every human is both saint and sinner at the exact same time, that no one is completely good or completely evil. In Latin, the term is said like this, simul Eustace et peccator. Eustace. Interesting. Saint. Simul, simultaneously, Eustace, saint, and Picotter, sinner, scrub. C.S. Lewis named this character Eustace Scrub, saint sinner. He's smart. Recognizing his dragonness is when this kid fully understands that he's a scrub, a sinner. But the part of the story I love best is how Master Scrub becomes Eustace again. And I think C.S. Lewis must have been inspired by our, by our text for today from the Gospel of John. After the young dragon is changed back into Eustace, a boy, he explains his story to his cousin Edmund. He says, maybe it was just a dream, but last night I couldn't sleep. I looked up and I saw this huge lion coming slowly toward me. He told me to follow him, so I did, far into the mountains, until we reached a garden, trees and fruit and everything, and in the middle of it there was a well. The water was so clear, and this thought came over me, if I could get in there and bathe, something about it made me believe it would make my arm feel better. The pain from the bracelet was awful, but the lion told me I must undress first. I was just going to say I can't because I was already without clothes when I thought maybe he means I should take off my skin. Dragons are snaky kinds of creatures, right? Maybe they can shed their skin. So I started scratching myself, and my scales started coming off. And then I pressed harder, and my whole skin started peeling off 
beautifully, like I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. It sat there lying next to me looking pretty nasty. It was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath, but when I looked down at my feet, they were still hard and rough and wrinkled, and I thought, maybe I have another smaller suit under that first one. So I scratched and tore again until this underskin peeled off beautifully. It lay next to the other, and I made my way down to the water, but exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought, how many skins do I have to take off? Have any dragons here ever wondered that? I tried a third time, but not enough, which is when the lion spoke up saying, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. It was thicker, darker, and more knobbly looking by far than the other skins had been. And there I was now, smooth and soft. That's when he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I began swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and I had become a boy again. And after that, the lion dressed me in new clothes. See, I think C.S. Lewis had read the 15th chapter of John. Jesus says, The Father removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. The Greek word for prune, kathero, is the same verb we translate in the next verse as cleanse. You have already been cleansed, made kathero, by the Word. The Word, for John, works like the lion's claw. The living Word prunes us, cleanses us. And here's another thing. Jesus said something a lot like this just a couple chapters before when He washed the disciples' feet. Remember when Peter doesn't want to allow for that? But then Jesus says, well, unless I wash you, you'll have no share with me. And Peter says, well, then wash my feet, my head, my hands too. And after Jesus does, Jesus pronounces them all kathero, clean, pruned, made ready to grow, thrive, blossom, just like Eustace with his fresh, smooth skin and new clothes. C.S. Lewis ends this chapter saying, you know, it'd be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Eustace is not just catharoed for the sake of his own skin. He is made clean 
to go thrive, to go blossom, be more Eustace and less scrub. And so he returns to the ship more helpful, more thoughtful, less selfish than before. He engages in those relationships he's been gifted with rather than seeking selfish pleasure all the time. This is our story too. In baptism, we are katharoed, cleansed, pruned by the Word. That's when God's cure starts to take hold in us. God makes us clean. But not so that we would simply feel good about ourselves. God prunes us that we would bear more fruit. The fruit of faithfulness comes from following Jesus, otherwise known as discipleship. And following Jesus means, I mean, if I asked that question and I had, you know, I started a, a sentence for you to finish, we'd have a lot of different answers, wouldn't we? Following Jesus means, so as I was thinking about how to finish that sentence for myself, I thought about a text I'd read recently in Hebrews. And Bible readers were about to finish the book of Hebrews. And in its very last chapter, Hebrews talks about the character of faith. That faith requires endurance, which is an interesting concept in itself. Throughout Christian and Jewish history, those who follow the Lord oftentimes get persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, stoned, killed. Undoubtedly, the communities who first heard Hebrews knew people who had become martyrs, people who had died for following the ways of Jesus, the way of faith in the Lord. But Hebrews doesn't say, seek out martyrdom. We're not told to go get ourselves killed, as if that's going to be what brings God glory. Instead, Hebrews says, endure. Being faithful means you'll endure whatever the world says about you being faithful, whatever the world does about you being faithful. Endure. So how are we to endure? Well, you might wonder or think maybe we're supposed to dig a little deeper, you know, try a little harder, grin and bear the tough parts of being faithful with tougher stuff. That's how we typically think about endurance. We put it on ourselves. But Hebrews doesn't say that either. It says, to endure, pursue peace. Advocate for those on the margins who don't know about God's grace yet. In other words, love your neighbor harder. Engage in those relationships more deeply. Endurance isn't about self-survival. It's about continuing to support and strengthen community around you a community that's meant to include everyone, all God's people, and not just in a way that tolerates other people, but in a way that shows that they are valued, that you value them as much as you know God values you, which would mean people of every color and gender expression and sexual orientation and political persuasion and age and socioeconomic level and education level and eye color and all of it. We have access to a claw that will remove our thick dragon skin. Pruned, made clean, clothed in the love of Christ, we are then called to follow. Know that when we do, 
We're going to have family and friends say and do things to us and about us that feel bad. Endure it. Endure it by continuing to be faithful, by pursuing peace, by valuing others. Advocate even harder for those who are on the margins, especially if you're not one of the people on the margins. That's how God and we keep faith alive together. Thanks be to God. Amen.